You are listening to Hope Fellowship Church of Jaffrey, New Hampshire. If you would like to check out more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit hfcnh.org. In today's message, Pastor Jordan Moody continues to walk us through the book of Hebrews. In chapter 8, we will discover what it means that we have a better covenant, a better priest, a better tent, and a better ministry. All right, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. We're going to look at the entire chapter today. It's one of the shorter chapters in Hebrews, though, uh, so you're lucky there. Uh, Hebrews 8, verse 1, and we're for 13 verses today. And I, I'm kind of excited about this chapter. It's almost like the cliff notes of what Josh is going to be getting in over the next couple of weeks in chapter 9. Uh, Hebrews 8 kind of uh, gives you the, the shortened version, uh, the summary of all the details that he lays out for you in great detail in chapter 9. Uh, so I get to do the, the quick summary and Josh will do the explanation. <laughs> uh, Hebrews 8 verse 1, now the point in what we are saying is this. Don't you love that, right? Okay, I know you're like, oh boy, the passage already stopped on verse 1. We got 13 to go, but don't you love when the Bible just says, okay, this is the point, right? Okay, anybody? Yeah, it's like uh, sometimes it can be very verbose and it goes all these explanations and then it finally just says, okay, here's the point, people, okay? So I like that, at least for me, that's very helpful. So in verse one, he begins by just kind of bringing all that he's been teaching us in chapter seven, especially some of the most complicated things in the whole book are given in chapter seven. And this Melchizedek in the depth where he then before that warns that, you know, hey, I'm gonna teach you some deeper stuff, but I'm not sure if you're ready for it. Do you remember that? When he's like, I'm not sure if you're ready to handle this. You ready to step up and eat the meat or do you just need the milk? And he's like, hey, are you ready? And then he goes into this deep thing on, on chapter seven. And then he brings it all around again. Okay, look, here's the point, okay? Here's where the rubber meets the road. That's what we're gonna look at today. Hebrews 8, 1. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, like have. I have Jesus as a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Verse two, a minister or a priest in the holy places. In the true tent, that word tent, you'll see it again, is the word tabernacle, tabernacle tent. The true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law, the Old Testament. Verse five, they serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Catch that? There are things that are copies and shadows of what truly exists in heaven. And then he goes on an explanation from Exodus. He says, when Moses was about to erect the tent or the tabernacle, he was instructed by God saying, hey, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. You picked that up yet? The copy, the shadow, the pattern here that was shown to you on the mountain. This is when God gave the pattern and the instructions to build the tabernacle. He gave them to Moses in Exodus. Verse six says, but as it is, Christ, Jesus Christ, has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. Remember that word. Since it is enacted on better promises. You've seen better over and over. It's in almost every single chapter of Hebrews, okay? Better, better, better. Verse seven, 
For if that, um, I just lost my place. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says this. Okay, now he goes in to a quote, a hyperlink from Jeremiah 31. In fact, this is the longest Old Testament quote given in the New Testament. Uh, it's, it's, it's from Jeremiah 31, almost word for word. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. He, uh, chapter 31, verse 31 through 34. He just quotes right here for, from verse eight to verse 12. So let's read the quote from Jeremiah in the Old Testament. Here in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter eight, verse eight says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand, almost like walked them by the hand uh, out uh, to bring them out of the land of Egypt for they did not continue in my covenant and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord. Get this, this is what he says. I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Verse 11 goes on and says, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Everybody's gonna know the Lord. And then verse 12, for I, I love this verse. This is the one we're gonna be concluding with today. I don't wanna skip ahead, right? For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Verse 13 is the summary of all that he's just said. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Let's try to make sense of that this morning. Today the message is simply a better covenant. You've heard that a lot, a better priest, a better Moses, a better Joshua, a better angel, a better everything, a better law, a better covenant. He, he, he's been using this throughout the whole book, okay? And today's this about this better covenant, better promise. But that word right there is striking to me in verse 13 at the end. It said in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete obsolete. This is the prophecy of a new covenant entails the obsolescence of the old. This is from Tom Schreiner. He says, the author doesn't envision a situation when the old and new coexist together as one, but rather the two covenants are not complementary to each other in the sense that, that they were successive. I know I just used a word, obsolescence. Not a word you use very often. In fact, I was reading it in a commentary and I was like, what in the world? So I looked it up. It's just a different way of saying obsolete. Something has become obsolete. The word obsolescence is the state of being which occurs when an object, a service, or a practice is no longer maintained. It's no longer required. It's degraded even though it may be in good working order, right? Like the iPad I was trying to set up, we're going on a trip, it's an older iPad and it has now been rendered by Apple obsolete, right? It won't upgrade, it's useless, it works perfectly fine, uh, but according to them, it doesn't work, okay? It's obsolete now, it's too old, it's not cool enough, right, you know? Not good enough even to show, put the shows on for the kids, I'm like, what do I do with this uh, paperweight now, right? It's become obsolete. And then this last week, there was an Apple event 
right, where Apple has released to the whole world showing them uh, all the new uh, latest gadgets that you can uh, get. You're gonna upgrade your latest device to the greatest and the latest, the brand new, all of these things. And if you're one of the loyal types who, you know, you hang on to your device, maybe some of you hang on to your device until it literally, like me, some of those, they don't work anymore, they're rendered obsolete. Or you drive a car, you don't always get a new one, you just drive that car until it finally dies. It's no longer in working order, you have to upgrade, right? You have to upgrade. And in tech, this happens a lot. In fact, this word obsolescence is used in technology quite often. It frequently occurs because a replacement has become an available that has, uh, has more advantages than the other one. There's too many disadvantages with maintaining and repairing the original, is what Apple would say, that they just want you to go out and buy a new one, right? Oh, your iPad doesn't work as good as it did? We'll just go get a new one, right? This happens in fashion all the time when a, a product no longer is desirable because it's gone out of the popular fashion. The style that was once exciting and new is now obsolete. It's not important, it's outdated. You know, you can think about all the different styles that, well, and some of you here today, it depends on your age, right? You're like, wow, I can't believe that that style is now popular again, right? Everyone, you know, Gen Z trying to say, look at us, we're so cool. And it's like, yo, that's how my grandparents used to dress, right? It all comes around full circle, doesn't it? And the fashion cycles, right? What was obsolete will one day become new again. But, but when we think about it in the past and in the history, this old and outdated, the things that faded away that probably are never gonna come back in style when you think about or, or use, they're just useless now. Think back in the day, you had these DVDs. It was pretty cool, right? Replacing video cassettes or VHS. Some of the kids are like, what are those, right? CDs, like, you know, Christian artists or any artist would come through and try to sell you CDs. That was how they made their money. Now it's, it's all online. You just gotta stream whatever. You can get any music you want from any streaming platform and CDs. And many, many cars don't even have CD players anymore. You know, the flip phone, you can remember that. I, I still remember I had a nice old flip phone in, in high school going to college and then now it's like the iPhone and, and touch screens are all just normal. I can still remember flipping that razor out, you know, bang, it was the coolest feeling ever, you know? Oh, it just feels awesome. There's something about that. You know, back in the day, you go to the Red Box, get your DVDs, you go to Blockbuster, Anybody been to a Blockbuster recently? No, <laughs> not recently, right? Some are like, yeah, I don't think there's any more around. I remember back in the day in Peterborough, you had the old A and B video. I don't remember you, I don't remember that place, okay? You go to A and B video and just got like a library full of VHSs and uh, my dad and other parents or whatever would let us go to the kids section, pick out one VHS, for, you know, it's just the coolest thing in the world. Um, or back in the day, you go to Radio Shack, get what you need. Maybe stop at a Borders. Have you ever been to a Borders recently? Those aren't around anymore. You have a few Barnes and Nobles still limping along, uh, but Borders I think is out. Or then you need to go maybe do an upgraded Radio Shack and you go hit up Circuit City for what you need, right? I mean, I'm naming these places, right? That I don't recall you're even around anymore and I think are all out of business. All have been bought out and have been replaced. They're outdated. Uh, They just don't fit the bill anymore. And so the main verses that I'm looking at trying to apply this today is really found in like verse six. Verse six of Hebrews eight says, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better. You could say it's been upgraded since it's enacted on upgraded promises, up better promises. 
And then he says, look, verse 7, for if the first covenant had been faultless, like, hey, if the first had been in perfectly working order and it was just the same as the new, well then, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Why would we need a new covenant if the old was just as good? Okay, do you get the concept here? This is what we're looking at. The logic is really quite simple. The obsolescence of the old covenant with the coming of the new covenant proves something that something new was needed. There was something faulty with the first. You could say Apple doesn't do a big massive event you know, and, and release all their latest and greatest pro, uh, products and telling you about a brand new iPhone, Studio Mac, MacBook Pro, MacBook Air, whatever, Apple Watch, whatever it is, and, and they, they don't tell you, hey, look, this product is actually thicker than it was before, right? It's actually slower than it was before. It's uglier than it was. It has less features, more buttons, it's heavier, and it's actually even more expensive, right? They didn't do that. Now, it's always more expensive, by the way, right? You know? But uh, they, they tell you about all the things that has been improved on it. Our product is revolutionary. You know, they don't say, like, we've released the latest and greatest version of the Apple bag phone, right? You know? Some of you are like, that was a thing? I've actually talked to some people who's like, oh, yeah, I had one of the first bag phones, okay? You know, that was a real thing. Um, Ford doesn't release a new truck, a new Ford Raptor, whatever, with less space in the bed, you know, less interior room, they say on their commercial. Our, our Ford Raptor, it's got less horsepower, worse fuel economy, poorer quality parts and materials, less features, and it's gonna be made 100% in Russia, right? You're like, yeah, awesome, man, I want that vehicle, okay? You're like, no, these things, like, that's not how it does not that makes no sense. It's not new, it's not better, it doesn't replace the old, in fact, it's worse. But the fact is, in this passage, he's saying the complete opposite. Look, everything that you've experienced in the past, the old covenant, the way in which you lived and interacted with God, look, I am creating an entirely new renovation. That'll be so much better than you can even imagine. It's like the HGTV Magnolia Network, right? You have your old house, and then boom, reveal the new house, right? You know, it's way better than it was before. It's beautiful. Works better. Things aren't breaking. It's... It's the way it's supposed to work. It functions because everything has been upgraded, okay? And so today we have these three main points that I hope you guys can take away. Just three simple things, really, in a sense. We have, in this passage of of Hebrews 8, we have an upgraded priest. I had an upgraded priest is number one. Number two, you have an upgraded ministry and really an upgraded tabernacle, tent, place of ministry, So you have this upgraded priest, an upgraded ministry that the priest operates in in an upgraded tabernacle and tent. And then all because there is an upgraded covenant or an upgraded promise. Priest, ministry, tent, and covenant. These are all upgraded. And I borrowed this word upgraded. It first hit me. It's not original with me. It's from that, actually, Tim Chester's devotional on Hebrews. So if you get that devotional in the back or you walk through it, he uses that word, and it just struck me how it helped me think this through today. He uses that word upgraded. An upgraded priest. So if you look at Hebrews 8, verse 1 and 2, you'll see the priest be introduced, that this is the point that you guys have, have, like in your possession, you have something. What is it that you have? You have a high priest, an upgraded high priest. One is far better. And this is the point he's been making. In chapter 7, he's been telling you, look, you had a priesthood, remember? In the Old Testament, you had a priesthood, you had a sacrificial system, you had a means for atonement, 
What was that? Sacrifices, tabernacle, temple, Levitical priests, Aaron and the priests going into the temple, uh, going into the tabernacle, making sacrifice and atonement. One day of the year, the day of atonement when they would go in and make uh, atonement into the Holy of Holies, sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, all of this. You had a means and a way for that. But look, I'm giving you a whole new way that's all so much better you can't even imagine. And in fact, this whole new order, this whole new priesthood, this whole new means of atonement is so much better that you only need one priest. And he's in his own order all to himself. He's in this whole kind of priesthood all by himself. It's called the order of Melchizedek. That's chapter seven, teaching us about this crazy, mysterious, interesting guy named Melchizedek that points to Jesus as the one and the sole and the final high priest, the one that you need. For a change was necessary. This change came through a priest who arises after the likeness of Melchizedek, as it says in Hebrews 7.12. Not on the basis of legal requirement, not on the basis of birth, but on the basis of an indestructible life. Such a cool phrase in Hebrews 7. An indestructible life, the fact that Jesus doesn't die. He is alive. He holds his priesthood permanently, we talked about before. He is a sacrifice that he does not sacrifice on behalf of himself for his own sins but he sacrifices himself because he is holy innocent unstained separated and exalted it says in Hebrews 7 verse 26 this is a great much better high priest who can offer atonement for you in far greater ways than he ever could in fact he does it in such a manner in such a way that he is finished with it Hebrews 8 verse 1 What does it say? We have a high priest, one who is seated. Now, if you're like me, sometimes the first couple times you read that, you just breezed through that and you press on to the other passages because you're in verse one. Who stops in verse one? Keep going, what's happening, right? But verse one says that our priest is seated. You guys are seated right now, right? You're not actively working. I'm doing all the work here, okay? Right? Yeah, right. But this idea of seated, when your work is done, you've worked all day, you come home and you sit down. Work is finished. God created the world on the sixth day, right? And then the seventh day, he rested. In a way, it's almost like as if he sat down. Here, uh, the priest has done the work. He is not standing continually, making sacrifice after sacrifice, pouring out over and over. No, it is finished. He has been seated. That's a pretty impressive phrase. That's a picture, a posture of our high priest who is not standing in the temple, making sacrifice, but, has, but is seated. He sits down. Hebrews 7 verse 27, he did this once for all and he offered up for himself. In fact, later on in Hebrews 10, I think it is, it says that he offers up a single offering. He has been perfected for all time, those who are being sanctified. It's a single time, once for all sacrifice. Jesus doesn't need to be put on the cross over and over and over. He sits down. He has no need to continue to offer sacrifice after sacrifice or to make atonement because it has been made. It has been offered. John 13, 30, what does Jesus cry out after he takes of the gall? What is he saying? It is finished. It is finished. With the board, uh, the booth to put up Romans 3. In Romans 3, we look at this passage and it's like, It's an incredible Romans 3 verse 23. It talks about this idea of the finished work of Christ, that that he has worked this out and it's a very familiar passage. And we know that. In fact, if I asked, I would bet half of you could say, if I said Romans 3 23, you could all say, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? It's one of those verses we like know that. But then what comes after it? 
It says, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. They, we have all sinned, but now we are justified. I am justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. That blood sacrifice. God has put Jesus forward for us as a sacrifice by his blood. To now be received by faith. This was to show what? This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness that God was to be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God is just in the sacrifice that he makes as he justifies and satisfies the wrath over sin and he is the justifier, the one who by makes the means and the way and the possible, meaning he is the priest and the sacrifice. He is the one who offers and initiates the covenant and he is the one who upholds and keeps the covenant. Isn't this not incredible? is just and the justifier. And so this is the once for all justified sacrifice. We are justified with Christ if we receive it in faith. And then it says he's seated. Back in Hebrews 8 verse 1, he's seated somewhere. Where is he seated? Seated at the right hand of God. Where? In heaven. His posture, he sits. Where does he sit? At the right hand of God, exemplifying the authority of, God, of his kingdom. He has authority as king. And he sits in authority. He sits and ministers as well in the dwelling place of God forever. The main motif here is this idea of the son's ministry exists not necessarily here on earth in an earthly tabernacle like it did, but in heaven in a heavenly tabernacle, a far better one. So this is our second point, an upgraded ministry, an upgraded tent. Look at verse two. Verse two, and a minister in the holy place is in the true tent, Hebrews 8, 2, in a true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Then it goes on in the next couple verses to describe that there is an earthly tabernacle and this heavenly one. And you get this kind of spatial uh, recognition here. Something going on in earth and, and something going on in heaven. And then you can think about the tabernacle as that very place, just extraordinary as it was to imagine a place, a tent of sorts in the wilderness where God, heaven, would meet earth. And the two would meet. And a representative of the people of God, Moses himself, at first, before the tabernacle would, was given, would go into a place that was called the tent of meeting. So before the instructions and the pattern had been given to Moses and before the tabernacle was laid out, God had ordered Moses to put together a small, very simple, what's known as, Moses called it, the tent of meeting. It was described in this manner that it says this in Exodus 33, verse seven. Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp, some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of the meeting outside the camp. And as Moses went into the tent, you imagine this, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses heaven and earth met. The place, a tent where in this mysterious and extraordinary intimacy would happen and an extraordinary power would be 
take place. Then God eventually on top of the mountain gave Moses instructions on the official uh, way to build the tabernacle and really the entire second part of Exodus. I think it's almost verses 20, chapters 25 almost through 40 give you instructions about everything that how big the temple was, uh, the tabernacle was to be, what it was to be made out of, the furniture that was going to be in it and the place that God would dwell amidst his people And yet even in this tent, the original tabernacle, the original Ark of the Covenant, you could say these were not the things that were the final. They were just the copies. That's what this passage says in Hebrews 8. It goes on and tells us about that these were not the originals. They were the copies of the heavenly things. They were the shadows of the heavenly things. The tabernacle, the temple, the furniture, the law had been rendered where it now has been rendered obsolete through obsolescence because an upgraded priest, an upgraded ministry, an upgraded tabernacle, an upgraded covenant has come that has replaced what was. To us now, we look back and we see how those things shadow the things to come. And then even for our uh, fainted understanding now, we even look forward to the fullness of those things when he returns. And so we know and see a little more than they did at that time for we have been revealed and can see and understand how God has worked over history and prepares the future for us ahead. For Hebrews 8, 5, and they serve as the copy of the shadow of heavenly things. Hebrews 10, 1 says a similar thing. Hebrews 10, 1 uses this word shadow. See if you guys can see it in here. Hebrews 10, 1 says, for since the law has but a shadow. The law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never by the same sacrifices that are offered every year make perfect those who draw near. The law could never finalize and complete and make perfect mankind. It was the shadow. It was the copy of the things that would one day come. Colossians 2.17, we talked about this months ago when we walked through the book of Colossians. Colossians 2.17 says there are, uh, there, these are a shadow of the things to come but the Substance. Do you guys remember that? Shadow and substance. But the substance belongs to Christ. The shadow and the substance. And so Exodus 25, when God gave him, he says, see to it that you make the pattern. You follow everything according to the pattern that I give you. God laid out the pattern. It's almost as if we, we looked at, maybe months ago as well, this, the Plato's cave illustration. And it doesn't work perfectly because he's talking about a totally different thing. But I think in some level, it it helps me think it through this idea of the shadows that are on the wall are are really just pictures of the true forms of the reality that are made outside of the cave. The light shines on those things and the shadows dance along the wall and we see them in part. And one day they will be revealed in its fullness. And the shadows of the tabernacle, the things and the copies and patterns point us to the one who would come, the one, the light of the world, the bread of life, this one who is the final lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. And so in our, in our heavenly dwelling in which we long for the future of where we go, the sin and evil of this world will be purged, the wrongdoing will be dissolved and the earth will be made new, new heaven and new earth and we live in the future heavenly existence with God in the full heavenly reality, the way that God has designed and intended it to be. And Peter promises that we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness will dwell. 
And yet in this time, in this period, we see in part, uh, we see and we, we look through a, a glass almost dimly, but beholding God as he sanctifies us to become new after the pattern of which he's created us to be. And I want us to look kind of at this word, new covenant, as we're looking forward to the something that's come, the better promises, the future of which we long for, the hope of heaven and resurrection, what is to come. We understand that one day, that period, that time when the Lord returns, that will be new in time. It'll be something new that God has done when he returns, new in time. That word in the Greek, new, is neos. Neos, which means new in time, like it's brand new. It's just made. It's fresh. It's new in time. But the word kainos is used here for new covenant and throughout most often speaking about this idea of the new covenant versus the old covenant. And the word kainos doesn't mean just new in time, that it's not old in time, but it means new in quality. You know, like those Apple events and the Fords and all that, cars, right? It's new in quality. It's actually better than it was in the past. It's newer, it's fresher. It's been restored. And yet it shares in kind to things of the past, the shadows, it shares in kind and likeness, but the substance of them are freshened up, are, are renovated, are new in quality. It's far better, similar to the old, but far better. It's far more inclusive, far more widespreading, it's far more transformative. And this is the beauty that I think we see here with the new heavens and the new earth. They are similar in kind to what we have seen and experienced in the past, but new in so much better quality than we've ever experienced. And here in the new covenant, it is likened to the old for many of the pictures are shadows and copies and patterns of what we experience now today, but it is far better than anything that we've ever seen. And it's really ultimately because we have an upgraded covenant. We've got this upgraded priest. We've got this upgraded means of ministry, a location, a tabernacle where God and Jesus make, coven, uh, make atonement in heaven for all, not just on earth in one location. But rather now we experience this because we have an upgraded covenant. And in keeping with our, with our technology theme, it's like you have been given an upgraded terms and conditions. Now I know many of you never read those, right? You know, when you have to upgrade it on your phone, please agree to the new terms and conditions. Scroll down, accept, right? And you've just given your life away to whatever tech company has told you to accept the new terms and conditions for what it might be. And that's similar to what this is like. That you've been given new terms and conditions upgraded way of accessing God. God's designed upgrade. He planned this from the beginning. This was no surprise. This wasn't like God just like, whoop, gotta figure something out now. No, he has been planning this up until this point. We see it even in the Old Testament that has foretold the coming of the new. It's coming. Look out for it. And it's gonna be way better. George Guthrie says this, no, it's the moon in the relationship to the covenant son. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant is the moon in relationship to the new covenant son. In the darkness of the Old Testament era, it shone brightly, giving insight to the holy, loving God of the universe. But this true, older light has now been eclipsed by the full intensity of the revelation in God's son. The word has been made flesh and dwelt among us. That is far greater and far better than any tabernacle or temple or place for Jesus dwells among us. 
The old covenant was not just this kind of legalistic way of operating with God, for God set it up. He designed it. He enacted it. And yet we now experience something far better, something that Jeremiah longed for and hoped for and looked for. For in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, which is quoted, as I said, here in Hebrews 8, this whole long section, verses 8 through 12, we see the planned upgrade, that God planned all of this way back in the day in Jeremiah that's now experiencing today. It's new, it's coming, it's better. And how is it that it is better? What are the better terms? What are the better conditions that God gives you? Well, he says, I'm gonna write this law not on tablets of stone, which can be broken and lost, but on your heart. Hebrews 8.10. Look at Hebrews 8.10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. And after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. I'm gonna write it right within you. Later on, it talks about how our bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit. We're the dwelling place of God. Law won't be written on stone tablets, but on human hearts. Second Corinthians 3.3, 3. I know I'm reading a lot of passages, but there's so much overlap here, and I hope you don't get lost in this. But 2 Corinthians 3.3 3 gives us another insight to this idea of writing on our hearts. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. There is now a greater intimacy and greater aspect of God that is written within our hearts. He writes it, not as this burden that he puts on us, but now our hearts have been chained from within. It's not out of a motivation or a requirement, but now it's out of love for what God has done. Not out of consequence and fear and duty, but not because I have to, but now because I love to. Now this idea of the law written within your heart, God's truth, his righteousness, what he has done for you is written within you that it motivates you out of a new, fresh, living, beating heart. Not a stone cold heart, but one that is living and alive and being transformed and sanctified. Now, not because I have to serve the Lord, but because I love to and I get to. Ezekiel 36 speaks about the same idea. I'm gonna sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and all your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I'm gonna remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put a spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is that idea in Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31 that we're now talking about here in the application here of Hebrews 8. And then then I'm gonna give you a knowledge of understanding. Basically, God is saying, I'm gonna give you a new heart and I'm gonna give you a new way of accessing God in a new relationship because everyone will have access now. You get that? I am not your high priest that, that accesses God on your behalf. The fact is that we have this priesthood of all believers, this section here, verse 11 and 12. They shall not teach one another his neighbor and each of his brothers saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest, isn't that neat? Every one of you, oh, I, don't, I'm kinda, I don't know the Bible as good as you, or I don't have the degree, or I don't have this, and I don't know. The fact is, the Bible says that we come to him in faith, that we can all have access to God. We can all have relationship to him. You can talk with your creator and your maker and have a relationship from the least to the greatest, the youngest to the oldest, all among us can know the Lord. That, that's crazy, right, that's amazing in a greater capacity than was done before. It's incredible. So this kind of application as we close, as we think about this whole thing, 
whole new covenant. This, the, the question that should be driving us, do we know the Lord? And it talks about how there will be a new covenant. Behold, the days are coming. They will put my law in your hearts and, and they shall all know me. But do you know him? Do you have a relationship? Do you speak with him? And again, sometimes, well, I, I don't know, I don't know, I've done a lot of bad stuff, I've been here, I've done that, you don't know, I've gotta get my life in order. No, you've been given better terms, better conditions, whereby none of those things are the maker, the, the, the factor by which you have a relationship with him. For in fact, all of those things, all of your past, all of your sins, verse 12, covers it all with Jesus' blood. Verse 12 of Hebrews 8 says this, for I will be merciful toward their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. How is that even possible? Isn't that amazing? How is that even possible? How can God forget something? How can he actually do something he can't do? He can't forget. Well, this idea is the way God communicates his great mercy and grace. The fact that he says, I am going to take your sins, I'm gonna put them at the bottom of the sea. I'm gonna put your sins as far as the east is from the west. I'm not gonna hold it against you. In fact, I'm gonna forgive you. I'm gonna give you grace. I'm gonna give you mercy. And I'm gonna forget that ever happened because Jesus' blood covers you. Because Jesus sits at the right hand of God, mediating on your behalf in this very moment. He's made the perfect and final sacrifice. He, his perfect blood, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, his blood is on the mercy seat and intercedes on your behalf because Jesus mediates a better covenant, an upgraded means, a better upgraded access to God that nothing, no one, anyone outside the person of Jesus Christ could give anyone. The fact that Jesus gives it to you, that he offers it to you, and God, in the Old Testament, yeah, the crazy old scary God of the Old Testament, whoa, the fact that that's the same God in the Old Testament is the same God in the New Testament, and we read about him right here, that he says, I, in the old and in the new, am going to be merciful toward your iniquities and your sin. I'm gonna forgive you, and I'm gonna remember your sins no more. I'm gonna pour onto you grace and forgiveness. You are going to get what you don't deserve. (laughs) Isn't that great? I'm gonna get what I don't deserve. Blessing instead of judgment, forgiveness instead of punishment. You get a clean slate, a new heart, a new mind, a new life. You're a new creation in Jesus because he forgives you. He will make you new. God will choose to forgive and forget. God will be merciful. God starts this covenant relationship with his new covenant people, this new state, this new nation, called the church, you and me. And of all of our failures and all of our uh, shortcomings, he's patient with you. He will forgive you. Those times that you don't know I did, he will forgive you. He will be merciful to you and we are then required as the church to enact that upon one another and to forgive because he forgives, to be merciful because he is merciful, to love because he first loved us. This is the church the embodied body of Jesus Christ here on earth until one day he unites heaven and earth in its completion and its fullness and its consummation when he returns. And then all of this will be made right in completion and whole. But until that time, we are God's ambassadors. As the church, we represent this aspect of way where God, heaven and earth meet through the church, through us as we interact with people. We extend mercy and grace on God's behalf for others. God made a way. He says, I'm gonna establish, I'll put my law within you, I'll write it within you, I will be your God, I will be merciful, and I will remember your sins no more. And by faith, we receive this gift of grace. of an upgraded high priest, an upgraded ministry in a better place, and an upgraded covenant. It's his terms and conditions, not mine. 
It's his way, written on our hearts by which we now operate as the indwelling temple of the Holy Spirit. Mercy for the consequences of our sin. Gracious liberty from guilt and shame. You can live the rest of your life holding shame and guilt over you, but that's when we do that is when we don't live in Hebrews 8.12, that God is going to remember that no more. You can live free. He's rendered that old covenant obsolete. He's given you a new way to operate in relationship to him by means of where we started at the very beginning in Ephesians 2. By now, we have access to God. He now, as Lars was saying earlier, preached peace to you. It says in that passage of Ephesians 2, he killed the hostility so you could have a relationship with him. He breaks down the dividing wall and opens up the door for peace with the people who wronged him, who sinned against him, who transgressed against his law, but who he covered them with his sin by his grace. He wants to know you. He wants to have a relationship with you because ultimately all of this is based on one thing. It's all based on one thing. And maybe we don't talk about it enough. Maybe I don't talk about it enough. But all of this is made possible. All of this way is made possible because it's based on one thing, and that's love. He didn't have to do any of this. This is God's way and means. How is it that this is the way he operates and wants to have a relationship? Because he loves you. And maybe sometimes as a preacher, I don't say that enough. I talk about we gotta do this, gotta do that, you gotta make sure you fill it, you know, do this right, do the service, um, end on time, I'm already one minute over, okay? But to be, take the time to remind you that God loves you. He's made a way. He's opened up the door. He wants to have a relationship with you. That's real. He does that through Jesus. Get to know Jesus. Get to know him in his word. Seek to have a relationship with him for every single one of you, says the Bible. You, too, can know him. Because your sins are forgiven. And step with confidence before the throne to receive grace and help in time of need. You go to him. He loves you so very much. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for these truths. We thank you for the reality of who you are and the reality of who you say we are and the the access, the freedom, the liberty that we can have in your presence that is impossible apart from Jesus. So thank you, God, for Jesus. Thank you for the blood. Thank you, God, for being our Father. As we're gonna sing in a moment, that you are our Father. And you have sent your son, Father, because you love your children, the people of God. We thank you, God, for being our Father. And we praise you and we give you the glory. And we worship and sing praises to you because you are good. As we've already sung this morning, the goodness of God. Your goodness is running after us, Lord. We thank you for our, thank you for your merciful and gracious love. In Jesus' name, amen.